My family and I watched an old movie this week called A River Runs Through It, based on the novel by the same name. Anybody seen it? It's a great story. It's considered a classic American story of the 20th century. It takes place in the 1900s. And the movie, the 1992 movie, stars a young Brad Pitt, uh, who reminds me so much of myself when I was his age. Uh, I actually am his age. Uh, Br uh, Brad Pitt and I are both COVID vaccine eligible uh, right now. Uh, will the similarities never cease? Uh, no, that, that's not why I resonate with this movie. I resonate with this movie because it is about a Presbyterian minister and his two sons. And the older son is the responsible one, and the younger son is a little rambunctious, but they're both good kids, and we see them grow up. We see them as little boys sitting with their mom in church, listening to their father preach. We see them play together. We see them fight each other. And we see them grow into young men who wrestle with their occupations and their place in the world. And uh, uh, here, here's a little excerpt from the book and from the, from the movie to give you kind of a feel for the way this story runs. Uh, it's, it's written, uh, it's a true story written by the older son when he got older. And his, this is what he writes. In our family, there was no clear line between religion and fly fishing. We lived at the junction of the Great Trout Rivers uh, in, in western Montana, and our father was a Presbyterian minister and a fly fisherman who tied his own flies and taught others. He told us about Christ's disciples being fishermen, and we were left to assume, as my brother and I did, that all first-class fishermen on the Sea of Galilee were fly fishermen, and that John the Favorite was a dry fly fisherman. In the afternoon, we would walk with him, with my father, while he unwound between services. He almost always chose a path along the Big Blackfoot, which we considered our family river. And it was there that he felt his soul restored and his imagination stirred. So it's a story about a Presbyterian minister and his sons, but quickly you see that the real protagonist is this river that runs through that part of Montana and runs through their lives. And it becomes a focal point for the family, and it's the place to which they return time and time again. It was in the banks of the river that the father and the son, uh, sons became bonded. It was to this river the boys ran when their homework was done, uh, and they could experience some sibling rivalry as they learned the art of fishing. When the older son, Norman, came home from college and was trying to find his identity, trying to find his roots, it was to this river that he went with his brother. The McLean family uh, knew failure and success and laughter and fighting and disappointment and change, but the river was always there. The river becomes kind of a spiritual metaphor for them. Montana would have just been a wilderness. Uh, their house would have just been four walls and a roof. Their lives just sound and fury were it not for the river that ran through it all. And I want to suggest today that there is a river that runs through the lives of Christians and this river is called the purpose of God. The purpose of God. We read about it earlier in Romans 8 and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son 
And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That's the purpose of God. It's going somewhere. This is a great passage for tough times. It's a great passage for a tough year. And we've had certainly a tough year. People have experienced so much loss. The loss of relationship, loss of human touch, the loss of jobs, loss of health, loss of life. We've experienced an increase in racial tension, in political polarization, in family division. It's been quite a year. And yet, none of this is new. Last week, we read the passage in Romans 8 that talks about creation being subjected to frustration and that this whole world is in bondage to decay, groaning to be released from its pain. If nothing else, the Bible is very realistic about the world in which we live, that while God made this world and people in his image, and he made the world full of life and beauty and relationship, the human race chose to go their own way. Sin entered the world, and now all of creation exists in a fallen state. And when theologians write about the fall of humanity, they often use this word total, total depravity. In my understanding, when they say total, they mean every part of human life has been affected, has been tainted by the fall. Our biology, our intellect, our will, our sexuality, all exist in a fallen state. It's a skew from God's original intent. And not just the human race, but all of creation exists in this fallen state. And God's purpose is to restore this world to its original splendor, to redeem creation, to rescue us from our downward spiral, to rescue you from your downward spiral. So today's passage includes one of the most famous, most memorized, most quoted lines in all the Bible. Many of you have this memorized, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. We know that in all things, God works. It's a fantastic verse. I think it's important to point out some things this verse does not say. This verse does not say all things are good. Does not say that. That would make no sense. All things are not good. Cancer is not good. The death of a child is not good. Human trafficking is not good. The coronavirus is not good. This does not say all things are good. Today's verse also does not say that only good things happen to those who love God. It does not say that. In fact, all things, all things, good and bad, will happen to those who love God. It's important that we know this. Many Christians explicitly teach, and most Christians implicitly believe, that if I love and serve God, I will have less bad things happen to me. And that's just not true. The Bible does not promise that if you love and serve God, you will be delivered from your circumstances. Paul does not believe that loving God leads to better circumstances. Paul believes that loving God leads to a better life. 
And he believes that for those who love God, you never have to worry about God's purpose being fulfilled. Also notice it does not say that all things are caused by God. God works in all things, but all things are not caused by God. There are other variables at work in the world. First of all, there are evil forces at work in our world. You know, the, the, the hymn writer says of Satan uh, that his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Our ancient foe is powerful and his forces are at work in our world. They're out to steal and kill and destroy and short of that, they will deceive and discourage and divide. Evil is at work in our world. And then there's the natural laws that govern our fallen world. Rivers overflow their banks. Tectonic plates shift. Crops fail. Cars crash. Airplanes fall victim to gravity. And then there's the human consequence of sin. This world is inhabited by sinful people, people like you and me who are prone to greed, to hate, to vengeance, and to violence. Human misery in our world is caused much of the time by human sin. But all things are not caused by God. God's in all things, but all things are not caused by God. There's a lot of variables at play. And this verse also does not say all things happen for a reason, which is how this verse is usually interpreted. We say everything must happen for a reason, or God must have a reason. And we say it to try to make sense of usually a bad thing that happened, and we're well-meaning by that. I'm just not so sure that it's perfectly true. Brian Wilkerson, to whom I owe a great deal of credit for this morning's message, draws a distinction here that I think is helpful between reason and purpose. Right? A reason implies a cause-and-effect relationship. A reason implies an underlying motive that makes logical sense out of everything that happens. Reason looks to justify every event as good and worthwhile and meaningful and significant. Things don't just happen, we say. They must happen for a reason. But I'm not so sure. To go back to an earlier example, what's the reason for cancer? What's the logical explanation for a stray bullet that finds itself inside the chest of a toddler sitting in a stroller? Or a tornado that devastates a town? Or a troubled man who walks into a massage parlor and starts shooting? A reason for everything? I don't know about that. But this I know, a purpose runs through it. A purpose runs through it all. The eternal purpose of God to restore this universe to its intended splendor and to enable men and women to become the eternal, beautiful beings that God created us to be. When it comes to years like the one we've just had, I think it's best to talk about purpose rather than reason. This is what Brian Wilkerson says. He says, reason looks at the isolated event. Purpose looks to the big picture. Reason is fixated on the present. Purpose looks down the road to the future outcomes. Reason insists on an explanation. Purpose says, let's get on with it. Reason hangs on to the event. Purpose hangs on to God, who is at work in it all. Romans 8.28 is about purpose, not reason. 
Romans 8.28 does not say everything that happens is good. It does not say only good things happen to good people. It doesn't even say all things work for good. It says in all things, good and bad, God works for his purposes. In all things, God works. Many years ago, we took a spiritual life inventory here in our church, and thousands of other churches in the United States did the same survey, and it asked questions about your spiritual practices and what was most helpful to you, and the results of our survey were very similar to the comparison churches in terms of what helped people with their spiritual well-being. And on the list, you know, as you would expect, sermons, right? You'd expect that to be good, right? Anybody? I'm fishing? No one? All right. Uh, sermons, Bible studies, small groups, reading the Bible on your own, spiritual disciplines, people reported, very helpful in their spiritual life. But then the question was asked, was there a catalytic moment? Was there a catalytic event or season that just propelled your spiritual growth or forced you inward and, and deeper? And there were two answers at the top of the list in our church and in the other churches And the number two answer of a catalytic, propelling spiritual event for life was a short-term mission trip. Yeah, that's what people said. They they said it was when I got outside of my culture, when I got outside of my element, and I had to rely on God, or it's when I spent time serving among the poorest of the poor that I encountered Jesus in a new way. And if you've been on one of these trips, this does not surprise you at all. They can be catalytic. And this is one of the reasons, honestly, we do so many short-term mission trips. We do them not only to help people, that's the first reason, but we do them because we know what happens in the heart of those who participate. And our mission as a church is to help people live and love like Jesus, and mission trips deepen that, help people do that. That's one of the reasons we do so many of them. The number one answer is harder to program around as a church because the number one answer, what people say is the most catalytic deepening season for them was a time of suffering. And we're not going to plan, you know, options for suffering on the church calendar. But people said it was when I was in a low point that I felt God's presence in really unique ways. It was in the low points that I was able to identify with our suffering Savior. It was those moments I felt intimacy with God And a lot of you that have been there, that won't surprise you either. And you find somebody that you really respect, a person of character, a person that exhibits the the courage and the compassion of Jesus, and you dig a little bit, nine times out of ten, you're going to find that they've been through something. Because God works in all things, in good and bad, to shape his people in the image of Christ and for future glory. And you can build a case that the difficult times are a better tool for our development than the good times could ever be. God works in all things. Remember when Jesus came across a blind man and his disciples said, you know, asked why? Why is this man born blind? That's a question everybody always asks. Why? Why? Was it this man's sin? Was it his parents' sin? Why was this man born blind? And Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. And people wise in spiritual life, instead of asking why did this happen, they ask how can this bring glory to God? Ask not why, but how. Is there a reason for everything? I'm not sure about that. But a purpose in everything, absolutely. God's purpose 
God purposes to restore this fallen world and to redeem men and women for himself. And the best thing is, God's purpose will be accomplished. It doesn't matter about Satan's schemes. It doesn't matter about how fallen humanity is. God's purpose will be accomplished. That's what the Apostle Paul says in the next line. He says here, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Uh, so when Paul talks about um, this idea of being uh, of the purpose of God, he uses that word predestined. Predestined. Can we go back to that predestined slide? He used the word predestined. Now he introduces this word not to confuse you. He doesn't introduce it here to talk about the doctrine of predestination or to answer all the questions that come up when that word is used. He uses this word to comfort us because something predestined is something fixed. It's certain. It's guaranteed. And what is it that's predestined? That we will be conformed to the image of his son. And you see in that word predestined, the word destined or destiny, Paul is saying, lovers of God, it is your destiny to become more and more like Jesus, to be glorified by him in the future. It is your destiny to become in the image of his son, right? It's going to happen. It's your destiny. And then you add the word, the prefix pre in front, and it sounds even more assured. You're not just destined for this. You are predestined for this. It is preloaded by God. It is going to happen. Suffering can't stop it. Persecution can't stop it. God's purposes will be accomplished. This is what Paul tells us. God can and will work in all things to accomplish his purpose. And then Paul goes on, and those he predestined, God also called, and those he called, he also glorified. Notice glorified is in the past tense, even though it's really in the future. Shouldn't Paul have said, you know, those that are predestined, those that are called, those that are justified, God will glorify sometime in the future. But Paul is so certain about this, he talks about it like it's a done deal. He talk, he's so certain about it, he talks about it in the past tense. He uses glorification in the past tense. This is going to happen. God is not going to let anything come between you and that goal. You are predestined to be conformed in the image of God's Son. We are fallen sinners destined for glory. I want to show you another line from the, the, the book, the novel, the movie, A River Runs Through It. As a Scot and a Presbyterian, you can see my intrigue with this whole story, as a Scot and a Presbyterian, my father believed that man by nature was a damned mess and had fallen from the original state of grace and that only by picking up God's rhythms were we able to regain power and beauty. And this is my favorite line of the whole movie, of the whole book. Unlike many Presbyterians, he often used the word beautiful. God is making this world beautiful. God is restoring all things for this future glory. For those who love God, God will work in all things to shape you for your future glory. There's this powerful scene at the end of the movie where uh, 
now the, the boys are older now, they're grown up. Norman, the older son, has gone off to Chicago to become a college professor and a writer. The younger son stays home, but he gets into gambling and drinking. The parents are getting older, and the family's beginning to spin apart. But one more time, the father and the sons go to the river uh, to fish together. Norman, the older brother, and his father tire out early, and they sit in the banks of the river watching the younger son fish, and he is filled with grace in the way he casts. This is Brad Pitt in the river fishing so magnificently, and he lands a, a, a big, enormous trout, and he's trying to pull it in, and he slips on the rocks and goes into the river, and he ends up bouncing off the boulders, and his head goes underwater as he washed down the river, and the father and the older son kind of run down the river, and at the bottom, he emerges victorious. He's got his trophy fish in his hand, and Brad Pitt's hair is glistening in the sunshine, and his, his smile is as big as the Montana sun, and the father and the older son just applaud and cheer for this young guy. And this, this is what Norman writes of this moment. He says of his brother, he, was, he, he wasn't just standing beside the river, he was suspended above the earth. I was looking at perfection. No, he was looking at glory. A young man at his best, father and son on a great adventure, the earth at its most magnificent. There was love and joy and beauty all around, and everything was just as it is supposed to be. That's glory. And in this lifetime, those moments are few and fleeting, but someday they will be yours and mine to enjoy forever because God purposes it. God's purpose that you and I would attain to the highest possibilities for which we were created. Men and women created in God's image, conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ, spending eternity with the people that we love and with the Savior that we love in worlds beyond our imagination. It's going to be better than anything we could possibly imagine. And that is the purpose of God. And no power on earth or on heaven or under the earth can stop it from happening because God works in all things for the good of those who love him and are surrendered to his will. So lovers of God, Christian, whatever has happened to you in the past, whatever circumstances you face in the present, and whatever the future might hold, know this, a river runs through it all. And that river is the purpose of our God. Will you pray with me? Well, God, we thank you for the comforting truth delivered to us through your servant, the Apostle Paul. We know that in all things, you, our God, works for the good of those who love you, who have been called according to your purpose. I thank you for the hundreds joining us today who have learned that truth through experience. And for those who are in the midst of difficult times right now. And for those who, for whom this truth remains largely untested. Your purposes are certain and sure. As we leave this gathering, God, help us to move through this week with confidence and hope. Shape us for your purpose by all things that happen to us in the days ahead. 
as we're still being conformed to the image of Christ. Help us to live and love like Jesus this week. You have called us together today for worship. Now send us out on your mission. This we pray in Jesus' name. And the whole church said, amen.